0: All right, um, open your Bible or your app or whatever you're using these days to Second Peter. Second Peter. Uh, we're taking a month and um, for any visitors, uh, well, you guys are doing the same thing as us, but we're, we're going through the Bible in three years and this is our third. Third year, I believe. Uh, we're coming to the end of our third year in a three-year trip, a uh, five-year trip through the Bible. And uh, during this season, um, we, so we've been doing it, um, not going straight through. Uh, we've been bouncing back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Before we did this, actually, we, for three years, we just went straight through. And we were like, we want to go through again, maybe a little slower and maybe bouncing back and forth between the the two testaments and so um, we have really finished all the historical books in the old testament as well as isaiah and um, the prophets after the uh, exiles return um we have we have a lot of prophetic books left in the coming years so just buckle up for that Mm -hmm. um Actually, Second Peter is kind of a good primer to pay attention to the prophets, right? Um, but what we're doing for this month leading into the new year is we're studying the general epistles. So the, the letters written by Peter and James and Jude. Um, so this is week two of four in that, in that sequence. Um, Second Peter and Jude are actually very similar. So a lot of this a lot of the uh, things that we'll talk about a lot of the things that Peter talks about in 2 Peter are also true um, in in the letter of Jude. Jude is great because it's it's like one chapter. If you say Jude, you don't have to give a chapter number, you just give a verse number. It's pretty cool. It's in Jude 24. Um, but anyway, we're in 2 Peter tonight and this is shorter than 1 Peter. Um, and so what we're going to do is just kind of walk through the letter and I'm going to stop and say some things. um, And just hopefully we can uh, through the course of the evening, come away with an overview of this letter. Uh, So let's pray. Father, thank you for this letter and thank you for um, the apostolic witness that we have access to in, in scripture. And I pray that you would anoint it in the same way that you carried men along to uh, to write the words of prophecy and to write the words of Scripture, Lord, that that same Spirit would carry us along as we uh, read and seek to understand and seek to uh, to know you through this Scripture. Uh, so, Lord, give us clarity, give us insight, and uh, convict us, Lord, exhort us, and bring us closer to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, go to chapter 3. Verse 1. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up. I mean, so this is a great place to go. What's this letter about? Why did Peter write this letter? Well, he tells us right here. In fact, he tells us why he wrote this letter in the last one. I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So, and then also go to uh, chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter is writing, particularly in this letter, it's getting close to the end of his life. And he says, how can I... What, What's left to say, right? Uh, what is left to say? What do I need? How do I kind of tie, tie up everything and, and leave it so that after I'm gone, they're going to be able to remain faithful to the life that Jesus has called us to? And so that's what this letter is for. And so he, he talks about in the first chapter, really the basics of the Christian walk. The basics of the Christian walk. And then he goes into more detail on the potential uh, pitfalls in that walk, all right? So that's really what what it comes down to. There is the trustworthy and true way to live. And there are people that you encounter out there who don't live that way and who even maybe claim my name and teach things that are contrary to this. Peter says, let me just, Get it in very clear terms. This is how you live. (laughs) And anyone else who says otherwise, watch out for them and uh, remember what I said. Okay? Um, All right. So Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. You know God. And you know God through Jesus. And he says, uh, so may grace and peace be multiplied to you. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What a verse. His divine power has granted to us all things he's the everything necessary has been done for you to be the person that god created you to be god has done everything necessary that's pretty cool through how do we how do we gain access to this all things that are necessary for life and godliness Through the knowledge of Him. Knowing God. (laughs) So, Peter's not the only one that, uh, I mean, Billy's not the only one that harps on this. Billy Henderson. This is part of the apostolic testament. Guys, what it all comes down to is that you know God. John says it this is eternal life, this is the way to live. That they know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. He wants us to be like him. He calls us to his own glory. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become Partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The divine nature is the opposite of the corruption and the decay and the sin that's in the world. You've escaped that. You've come out of that. You've gained everything necessary for life in this present age, in the midst of all that stuff. You can now live in a way that is not subject to the death and the decay and the corruption that's in the world. For this very reason, okay, for this very reason, because you have everything at your disposal, because God's done everything necessary. And there's a a, a clear reason that he he, uh, says it in this way. And the reason is because there's a lot of false teaching that doesn't say this kind of thing. All right, so he's saying in a positive sense, and then he's going to negatively rebuke and reject the teachings of stuff that uh, doesn't accord with this. For this very reason, because you have grace, because you have everything you need, for this very reason, make every effort. Okay, there was a teaching going, there were false teachings going around that said... Um well, among other things there 's not there 's not going to be a, a a culminating judgment in the end right? or at the very least, the judgment is not going to be what you think it is, and so really, you can just live as if you 're free right this is Licentiousness or license. In Jude, it says, false teachers who pervert the grace of God into license or permissiveness in sin. He said, okay, no, he's done everything necessary. It's just grace, it's all grace, it's nothing that you could have earned, anything of that. And that's why you should make every effort to live an upstanding, moral, holy life, all right? So it's not that we gain access into the kingdom by our effort. It's that God's done everything, and the the true response to that, the correct response to that, is obedience, is effort, is discipline, is throwing yourself into this life that God, so it's that it's effort, but it's also continual progress. That you're saved, you're delivered, but you have a whole life to live now. Until the death of your body and the resurrection of your body and in the judgment, you have this whole life to live to prepare you for the kingdom that's coming. That's what life is about. In the so it's not like. All right, everything's done. Now we just got to kind of wait around and, and, you know, fritter away the time doing what our desires tell us until the death of this world. And then we can go and, you know, be spirits and have our harps and sit on the clouds and whatever. Oh, no, he says, <laughs> oh, there's very much stuff to do in this life. And here's, here's what it is. So you have faith. And there's this list of, of uh, ethical or or uh, virtuous um, ways of living. Supplement your faith with virtue. That's that's the same excellence in the previous verse. God calls us to His glory and excellence. It's a very Greek word. It's uh, it's the same kind of word that um, a Greek hero would be known for excellence. All right? You achieve excellence and glory. It's arete. You achieve... That's what, that's what a, a, a hero in, in the works of Homer... That's what he lived his life to, to achieve. Arete. Supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection with love. So we go from faith to love. And the thing about this list... It's it's ways that we become partakers of the divine nature and ways in which we reflect the divine nature, right? We're called to God's excellence. We're called to know him and to to increase in knowledge of who he is and who we are and to be self-controlled, not to be subject to our desires. We've escaped the corruption. We've escaped the lusts. That bring corruption. Steadfastness. A long obedience in the same direction. Godliness. Being like God. Brotherly affection. So all of these things, uh, you could spend a lot of time on each of those words. But all of these things are proof that we are growing into uh, the likeness of God. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what that implies is there's a way to know Jesus, but to be unfruitful and to be unproductive. And this is what he says the the false teachers are going around promoting. An unfruitful and unproductive way of knowing who Jesus is. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Okay, and this this idea will come back up when he talks about the patience of the Lord and a thousand days or like a or a thousand years or like a day. A day is like a thousand years. That our conception of time is not God's conception of time, and our 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 perception of it. So he says. If you're not growing and being diligent and giving yourself to grow in this way, you really don't understand the the big picture. All you really understand is life in this world. But again, you've been delivered from that. You've been delivered and and you've been placed in the kingdom of God. So if you lack these qualities, it shows a fundamental disconnect between what God has done in your life and your actual perception and understanding of it and appropriating it into the way that you live having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Well, if you're cleansed from your former sins, that you don't continue in that lifestyle. You have a totally different lifestyle, and here's what it looks like. So be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. All right? Jesus didn't die to give you a little stamp. All right, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. Jesus died so that you could become what you were created to be, all right? And part of that is the act of deliverance on God's part. But the next part of that is your response to that act of deliverance and your living out what he has accomplished in your life. So if you just rest on what he's done and all things that he's given you pertaining to life and godliness, but your life doesn't look like it, you don't know God properly. That's another way of saying it. You don't really know God in the way that you should. You're nearsighted. You're blind. You don't actually see. You see part of it, but because you only see part of it, you fail in the in the larger whole. So, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Come out of the world and you're being transformed day by day as you, are, as you diligently give yourself to receive and live in the grace that God is pouring into your life. Which, which contains everything necessary for life and godliness. And you grow in that and grow till the day that you die well, then when the kingdom comes and, and, and the resurrection of the judgment, yes, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward, right? You understand who I am and you've lived a life that reflects the nature of the kingdom of God. So that's, that's his mini sermon. That's what he really wants them to hang on to. He says, so I'm gonna, in writing this last letter, I have, some, I have some concerns, and I'll get to those. But always remember this, guys. He's done everything necessary. And you've got to give yourself to it every day. And live in it. And be different. And don't go back to the old way. And keep growing, keep growing. Don't just sit around. Be diligent. Make every effort, he says. And this is what Peter wants them to do. Uh, to understand what he wants them to be able to remember after he's gone. So that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And Peter knew. Peter knew in his wisdom and probably by the Holy Spirit that at any time was going to include some very hard times. Persecution and oppression, but also false teaching. And this is one of his concerns. So then he, then he addresses at the end of chapter one, he addresses the, and this is kind of, so we have one side of the argument here. And so you kind of have to reverse engineer what was being taught and what is he, what is he counteracting? All right. So there's, there's two things here at the end of chapter one. The first one is that, um, you know, maybe all of this stuff was sort of just a myth, this Jesus guy. I'm not sure if he was actually a man. These stories have kind of proliferated. We're not so sure about all this. And Peter says, oh, let me tell you (laughs) what these eyes have seen. This isn't a myth. I went up with him on the mountain (laughs) and this cloud came down and this voice from heaven and it was crazy. And he was glowing. And we were there. We saw it. Right? This is he talking about the transfiguration. He so, said, So first of all, don't tell me it's a myth. <laughs> I know what I saw. I was there. And what the voice from heaven said was, Jesus is it. <laughs> this is my son. This is who I am pleased with. Listen to him. So Peter says, well, I think we should listen to him, right? We were with him on the holy mountain. And then he says, the second thing is that if you just read the prophets too, go back and look at the prophets. This is what they were talking about. You can't get around them. The prophets were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it was revealed to them what the Messiah was going to be like. And let me tell you, I saw him, <laughs> and I heard the voice on the mountain say, this is him, and I checked it with Scripture, right? Lest you think that I just kind of dreamed this. No, I checked it with Scripture too. Scripture confirms that this guy's it. He is the one. So he says, everybody, it's not a myth. And in fact, Scripture supports Jesus as the Messiah. So he says, pay attention. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Nobody just kind of pulled this out of nowhere. All right. They said it a long time before it happened. And then it happened in exactly the way that he said. So we should pay attention to it. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So he says, my eyes saw it. Scripture talks about it. The Holy Spirit is confirming all this stuff. So let's not, you know, you can get out of here with the skepticism. <laughs> That's what he says. Don't talk to me about this being a myth, a cleverly devised myth. I mean, it had to be pretty cleverly devised, you know. I don't even think someone with today's technology could have, could have pulled off this sort of stunt. Maybe that guy, the David Copperfield guy, the illusionist, I don't know. He can't make it up. He said, this isn't made up. This is real. It's true. So he does those two things in the first chapter. So in the second chapter, he starts to really get into the false teachers. Okay? Uh, There are false teachers, and he says, and this has been going on all along. So basically he says, y'all is the people of God are in the same exact situation that the people of God have always been in. Because there's always been people who come and say, thus says the Lord, and then it's something false. They didn't hear God, they're just spouting off. He says, in the same way, there's going to be teachers that come in and say, well, this is really what it means to be a Christian. And don't listen to them. Especially because, and especially when, Their lives really look like the stuff that you were brought out of. If they seem familiar to you in a worldly sense, probably don't listen to them. Right? Particularly, he says, sensuality and greed. These are two things that will mark false teachers that you need to avoid them. They will exploit you with false words. So then he says, and this is really a warning to the false teachers. He says their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their their destruction is not asleep. And then he gives gives three examples of where um, there were righteous people and there were unrighteous people. And God came and preserved the righteous people. And they were living together, living in the same time and place. And God preserved the righteous, and he judged the unrighteous. Because God's been doing this all along. So just because you're, you're successful now, you're, be, you're able to exploit people now. Listen, God will judge the unrighteous. So he talks about the angels, when they sinned, um, he cast them into hell. He talks about Noah in the midst of an unrighteous world, right? That was really one of the low points of, of human history. The thoughts of mankind were always evil continually. Noah was the only one doing righteous. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God said, preserve Noah. The rest were swept away talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, but Lot was saved. Even though Abraham was trying to bargain for hey, if there's just 10 righteous <laughs> save the city." well, there weren't 10, it was just ended up just being Lot and his family, but not his wife. Not even his wife. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if you rescued righteous Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Lot was in this world. And he's saying, these people are saying, this is the way to live. This is the right way to live. No, it's not. It's wrong. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then he says, and this is the warning. The Lord knows how to rescue the righteous. How to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Especially those who indulge indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And then he just launches on this long uh, denunciation of the false teachers. And uh, this is where you find a lot of uh, parallels with uh, the letter of Jude even some of the same, similar metaphors. Irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're blots and blemishes. So these are people who are among the people of God, but who are false and who, who presume to know what it means to be uh, of the people of God, but they don't. And they're out for their own good. They're out for their own pleasure. And they're deceiving people around them. Eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. So you, you see, really, the two big markers are sexual impurity and, and greed, and, uh, monetary greed, Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Another Old Testament example of of, of Balaam. um, Who was a prophet and really actually saw stuff, but ended up actually um, causing the people of God to stumble by intermarrying with the daughters of Moab. And then he just keeps going, really through the end of chapter 2. You know, Kind of a very colorful name-calling here. They're waterless springs, mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. And here's, I think, where the heart of it is. Speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. And this is, I think, a a word that's desperately needed today because what's called freedom most often in America, even among American Christianity, is the ability to do what i want to do but the the deceptive underside of that is you are enslaved to what you want to do and it's actually not freedom You have to lust when your passions say lust. You have to deceive when your passions say deceive. You're not free. The freedom that's being preached here is freedom from condemnation, freedom from judgment. Right? Everybody wants that. But Peter's saying, if you want that, but you don't stop doing the things that deserve judgment, you're in a dangerous spot. If you think you have freedom, but you haven't lived in freedom, there's a day coming. That's what he says. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And then he talks about how It's particularly bad for these people because they do know Jesus. They have received, they have heard the gospel. And they have escaped, he says, for if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. I would say it's all the worldly stuff has just been repackaged with religion, with Jesus stuff, with God stuff and you're really just essentially living the same life, well, that's even worse than just being an outright pagan. If you come out of the pagan world, but you keep living a pagan life, but you think you're not, that's very dangerous. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Then he pulls out a great proverb the dog returns to its own vomit. <laughs> and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallowing in the mire. So, what's he saying here? One of the things, and I think this is one of the important points of this whole book, is that there's no such thing as a separation between doctrine and ethics or lifestyle, okay? Christian doctrine is Christian practice. Make sense? These people had, they thought they had the doctrine, but that whole first part, this is why you understand the significance of that whole first chapter, his opening little sermonette. The whole thing is, there's a way to know Jesus that's unproductive and unfruitful. And these people are doing that. They know who he is. They've heard the gospel. They've even, maybe they've even been baptized, which is probably what they're talking about here whenever they talk about escaping, being delivered. They're probably baptized. They're among you. But they're blots and blemishes among you because their lives have not been transformed. They're not making every effort. They're not supplementing their faith with virtue, knowledge. Godliness, um, and everything else. So he says, Remember this. Don't, don't get drawn astray by the, the false teachers. Remember, and he, he mentions two things the, the prophets and the apostles. The prophets and the apostles. Remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. This is what Paul says in Ephesians is the foundation of the church. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Peter says, live your life. Don't listen to the false teachers. Cling to the prophets. Cling to the words of the apostles. In Acts 2, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? And he says, don't, after I'm gone, keep, keep devoting yourself to that. And praise the Lord that the church, for 2,000 years, has been devoting herself to the apostles' teaching. Right? And that's really what's kept the church alive. Because every generation has people that come in and think they know what they're doing and want to change everything to suit them and to get a little kickback from it too. every generation. (laughs) Peter saw it coming. It's been true in every generation of the church, the mixing of Christianity with sensuality and greed. Just go read about in the last five years, prominent Christian leaders that have fallen from their positions. It had to do with sensuality or it had to do with greed. (laughs) And they were among them, right? They were baptized. They were teaching people, forcefully teaching people, building up an audience. So one of the things that the false teachers say is that, hey, you can live however you want. Uh, because, I mean, look how long it's been. They said said he was coming back any day. Well, you know, it's been quite a few days. So what are we doing? They say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And then Peter, again, he, he comes back with two extremely powerful arguments. The first is, well, guess what? It hasn't just been kind of happening since the beginning. God's been intimately involved since the beginning. And he, in fact, by his word, created everything. But then, his, then by his word, he created it out of the water. But then a little bit later, by his word, he doused it all in water. <laughs> and judged the earth. So it hasn't been like, oh, yeah, since the beginning, it's all been about the same. No, no. God has been intimately involved the whole time by his word, all right? And guess what? The same word is storing up the heavens and the earth for fire. It was water then. It's going to be fire next. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is the day of judgment. And, and again, his point here is the opposite of what a lot of preachers of the day of judgment are making. Stick with me here. Don't overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. So the first one is, no, you don't understand how involved God has been since from the beginning. It hasn't just been said it and forget it. You know, God's been moving and shaping and judging and purging and restraining it's only by the word of God that you're even able to say anything and draw breath so careful and then he says and also your perception of it's taking a long time is nowhere near God's perception of it's taking a long time he's and this is like in the beginning where it says you're so nearsighted that you're blind. You're so, sho- it's just, all you see is you and what affects you in your immediate sphere. <laughs> it's like, that's no way to live. That's no way to have a perspective. So he says, so a day for you is a thousand years or a thousand years is as a day. The Lord's not slow. So he says, first of all, your your perception of time is all off. And also, the fact that God hasn't come back yet, that the day of judgment has not happened yet. Rather than saying, well, looks like he's not coming, let's give ourselves to sin, which is what they did when Moses went up the mountain. Remember that? Where is this Moses? We don't know what's become of him. Let's make a golden calf and worship it. Wrong idea. God's patience and slowness, you should rejoice that the day of judgment hasn't happened because it means there's still time for you to repent. God doesn't want to come. He he would just as soon you see who he truly is and come and seek him and, and repent of your ways and come and follow him. So don't take the slowness of God. Again, it's like taking the grace of God as permission to keep sinning. Paul says, by no means. Don't take the patience of God as, well, we got time to kill. Because that's short sighted, too. Because just when you're off killing time, boom, it's going to come. It's going to come like a thief in the night. And then he describes the day of the Lord, the, the day of judgment. Um, and it's he, he just it's straight from out of Isaiah, right? The heavens are going to roll up like a scroll, and it's everything's going to be, you know, peeled, uh, torn away, and rolled up like a scroll. And here comes God, and everything that's unrighteous is going to be destroyed and banished out of the kingdom. But a lot of times when we hear this this word you know everything is going to be burned up you know this this world's passing away then we stop caring about the way we operate in the world we stop caring about the world but that's the exact opposite thing so here's what he says since all these things are to be dissolved since this day is just going to come and blast just like the flood drowned everything that was unrighteous except noah and he preserved noah this fire is going to come and purge everything. And it's, it's going to be just crazy. I mean, the mountains are going to flee. People are going to say, mountains, come fall on us. And it's just really hyperbolic, this, this language. that you, you, You're not even really going to be able to grasp it with your mind. There's not going to be words for what this day is going to look like. So, live your life in holiness. That's the proper response to God's going to come and everything, the heavens and the earth will be rolled up like a scroll. It doesn't mean, so doesn't matter what you do now, it's all going to go away. You understand? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But... This is the most important verse in this whole passage. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Somehow, just like God brought the flood on the earth, somehow in the day of judgment, everything is going to be burned that does not not belong in his kingdom. Right? Murder. Out of here. Adultery. Adultery. Out of here. Sickness. Out of here. It's all going to be hell. Out of here. All of that is hell. And it's going to be cast out and burned forever. Banished forever from the. And what's left is a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So I don't know. I don't know what this looks like. But I'm not convinced that. Because I think I used to think, oh, yeah. And the end time is just, everything's going to be obliterated. But somehow, the day of judgment is going to be also a day of renewal and rebirth. It's not going to be a day of just complete obliteration for everything. Because we are waiting for that day, but on, we're not just waiting for that day. We're waiting for what's on the other side of that day. And somehow on the other side of that day of judgment is a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that brings the whole letter into focus. This whole idea about the day of the Lord brings the whole thing into focus. Your life is going to come to an end. Heaven and earth themselves, in a way, are going to come to an end. That end is not the end. And we live our lives from here until then. However, whether that comes first or whether we die first, we live our lives as citizens of the new heavens and the new earth. So that when we are raised, when everything is renewed, and when the judgment happens, so that we come into the new heavens and the new earth and we realize that we're home. Yeah, this is, this is how we've been living. Right? And so the world is passing away. But the reason God hasn't banished at all is because there's a lot of people left that he wants to be able to be in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen? Since you are waiting for these, the new heavens and the new earth, be diligent, there's that word again, to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And then he gives Paul a shout out. He says, you know, I know Paul's been, you've read Paul's letters too. And yeah, some of it's a little hard to understand. And he says, the ignorant and the unstable twist them to their own destruction. So apparently even back then, people were getting Paul wrong. As they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow... In the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and in eternity. That's it. That's what he's trying to say. To him be the glory. Glorify him with the way that you live. Both now and in eternity. Not, well, it's not going to happen now. Now we are got to wait till eternity. No, now and then. And that's the real tension that we live in because we try and live this life, but we're, we're amongst pagans. We're amongst those who live the way we used to. <laughs> and actually, some people among us are going to be, go back to that and, and begin to say, no, you know, the Lord's not coming. There's no punishment. There's no, no. The grace of God is like it's it is an active, transformative force in our lives. The grace of God is not just something that, whew, all right, I don't have to worry about hell. The grace of God, He said, grow in grace. Grace is not a one-time boop. All right, you're saved. Grace is an ever-present. Blessing in our lives to allow us to grant to us all things necessary for life and godliness, and as we grow in grace, we are transformed in the in the very same way that he described in chapter one. We're transformed from faith, which says, "Yes, I know who God is, and I believe that uh, I know who He is, and I know who that that I've been delivered." And I now receive that grace. Grace, Our faith receives the grace. And so by faith, we then grow, by the grace of God, into people of love. That's where it ends up. That list of things, it culminates, and the crowning of it is love. God has called us to be partakers of his divine nature, to live as a people of love. He does that by his grace in our lives. And he does it now in this life. And the way that we respond to God's grace and his presence and his transformation in our lives now determines, really, our eternal future. So don't listen to anyone, Peter says. Don't listen to anyone who says, yeah, I don't know, he's not coming. Or, no, you're free. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to. Deny yourself anything. By the grace of God, you're free. Don't listen to that. I mean, yeah, they're using the word grace, but they have no idea what grace is. God's God of love. Yeah. <laughs> love sacrifices itself. Love does, seeks not its own. Love is in control of its own desires and is not as enslaved to its own desire. So yes, God is love. Yes, God is grace. But just mouthing that doesn't mean that you understand that. You know you understand it when you're becoming more loving. You're becoming more gracious. And you're growing in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.